I'm not here to poke holes in suspended disbelief. Anyway, they see some weird shit. They decide to make a baby. Thou Merkin merchant. Who gives a fuck? Oh my god, we're just gonna start calling you Damien Yeltsin's billboards. Well, you know, uh, I really like it here. Uh, it's kind of nice, and uh, it's not as cold as back home, and the soil is a lot better. So yeah, sure, I think we're gonna settle. If I'm a peasant boy who grabs a sword out of a stone, yeah, I'm able to open people up. You will, yeah. Anytime I hit them with it, right? Yeah. So my cleave landing will make me a cavalier. Good day, sir. If Siskel thought it was empty-headed plebeian trash, he was probably <laughs> really good at groove on it. <laughs> because cannibalism and murder. Pull back just a little bit and build walls to keep out the redheads. Authorial intent doesn't exist. Some people stand up and wipe their butts. Some people stay seated and wipe their butts. Like it just. all of that right now as you all who are listening already know uh, over the magic of the internet thanks to the plague stalking the land and um, my bit of personal news is that I have managed to uh, get my wife interested in joining me in an online zoom based D&D game with a group of friends uh, that I've been I've been playing the game with since college that sounds awesome Yes, the one downside is it's second edition AD&D because our dungeon master is a Luddite. That sounds awful. <laughs> so I know <laughs> I know that's going to generate Twitter hate. I know that's going to generate fine. Twitter hate. Like you can find me EH Blaylock. Bring it on. Bring it on. I will edition wars you to death. How that has not become an episode yet. I am disappointed. I, I you know, mostly it, the thing is, I enjoy all of them to one extent or another, and mm-hmm. I find the hate tedious. But I am going to say that, like, I genuinely think fourth edition introduced some interesting things into the concepts around the game. Um, I think three point five became way too clunky. And I generally like fifth a lot, but I think there are a lot of ways in which it is a little bit oversimplified. So there you go. Yeah. I still think you could come up with a full hour or two about the history of the edition. I, I know I totally could. Yeah. You should. I know I totally, I yeah. You should. Right, fine. Yeah. And we have a hundredth episode coming up and, soon. So, I mean, I think, okay. Yeah. All right. All right. I'll, yeah, you're right. Oh, shit, do we? Yeah, we do. This is episode 94, if I count correctly. Mother puss bucket. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. So anyway, that's that's what I've got going on. Who are you? Uh, my name is Damien Harmony. I am a Latin teacher from, uh, from up here in Northern California, also teaching safely, thank God, uh, because I have a union. Um, and uh, despite my district's best attempts to try to get us all dead from a preventable disease 
we're actually holding fast, which is really nice to see. Uh, so, and solidarity to the teachers in Chicago who are yeah. flat out Damn saying, right. no, you don't get to kill us just yep. so that you can have chicken wings. <clears throat> um, so, uh, yeah. And also, a uh, point of interest for me, uh, next week, uh, one of the, another reason why uh, we're, we're, we're not going to be doing a recording next week, but we'll have an episode. Don't worry, folks. Yeah. Largely because we're behind by one anyway. Uh, but uh, I, I'm getting my COVID shot uh, next Thursday. So uh, my first COVID shot. And here's what kills me about that. <laughs> Nothing because it's a vaccine. But yeah, here's the part that bothers point. me about it is that anybody I've told about that the reaction that I get from them is roughly the same, and I saw it in your eyes, of how did this motherfucker get the hookup? And there should not be the same idea about getting a vaccine as there is toward getting sneakers that people want. Like, it's it's a sickness in our system that, yeah. number one, you got to have a hookup, and number two, it's seen as a hookup instead of a vital thing to get society back on track. Or onto oh, yeah. a better track, like it. It bothers me no end that people are like, yeah. "Oh, how'd you do that?" Like it's, like you yeah, should no, have to I'm, hustle I'm, for it. Yeah, no, I mean you're 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 my friend. I mean, yeah. I, I am I am I am deeply deeply genuinely happy for you that oh, you are. Getting everybody that has vaccine. been too. Like you know, but there's another layer <laughs> of how. Yeah, but how at the same time, that? I'm like like what what do I have to sign up for? Who do I got to right. talk to? Right. Like, how do I you know. Instead of we just go down to the local VA or the local armory or the local high school and stand a far distance apart and get our goddamn polio shot and and get and get jabbed. Yeah. You know, my my folks uh, both got their first shots. And of course, they're they're in their 70s. I mean, they're they're in a, you know, high priority category. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, they they just got theirs day before yesterday. Mm hmm. Uh, or it might've been yesterday. Anyway, yesterday, uh, they just got theirs yesterday. And when I, when I saw that my, my mom had posted that on Facebook, the mm-hmm. level of relief yeah, that I experienced was like totally understandable, but like, it shouldn't be understandable. Shouldn't be a relief. Like, yeah. like yeah. it, it shouldn't be relief. And you know, it, the thing is, we're in this situation right now, and and you and I feel this particularly keenly because in in our profession we've had this emotional roller coaster of like back in March, everybody on the internet was wanted to wanted to fall all over themselves to talk about oh my god, I got my kids home all day now and now I understand what it is my teachers are you know their teachers are dealing with and they all want to get paid a million dollars and da 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 da, and I couldn't enjoy that because I knew that it was going to eventually turn into what we have now. Mm-hmm. Which is literally being told you aren't special. Go back to work. And I wouldn't see here. Here's the problem that I have with any of that. Um, I don't like the begging of the question that has become this whole situation. It shouldn't be you aren't special. Go back to work, or I deserve to. Like I shouldn't have to argue for my my right to be alive um, and yeah. safe. What should happen is, and and I'm, I found a soapbox. I'm gonna stand on it. We should be paying people to stay home and paying businesses to stay afloat, so that we can all stay the fuck home. 
so that the vaccine is more efficacious so that we can all come back together. That's what we should be doing. And absent that, don't you dare pull my ass down to try to stand on me to hop over a fence. And that's, that's, and, and, and I ain't going to do that to anyone else either. Like it, it's just, oh, it bothers me no end. Like you, you wanted chicken wings and now you have to deal with the consequences. Yeah, you know the thing and we is, all and, have to and, deal with those, unfortunately. Yeah, everybody. Yeah, the, the trouble is, it isn't just you know one group of people. It's all right. of us have to deal with it. And what what has been coming back to me over and over and over again since the twentieth of this month, because mm-hmm. it's January twenty twenty one as we're recording this. Mm-hmm. Every day since the twentieth of this month, I have seen uh, the highest level of leadership in our country politically. Mm-hmm making solving this set of problems they're they're literally their number one priority like mm-hmm. they're 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 doing they're doing all kinds of stuff about all kinds of things that need to be fixed but at mm-hmm. at the forefront of all of it is we got to figure out how to deal with the pandemic because it is it is killing people and every one of those deaths is preventable yep and if we had had a functioning fucking adult mm-hmm. in the white house in February of last year, yeah, we would not be here right now. That's true, people and a lot more been, people would be, and a lot and a lot more people would be with us. Four hundred thousand people, mm-hmm. or some somewhere in that neighborhood. Four hundred thirty thousand. Oh God, damn it! Yeah. Um. No, would, you're absolutely would right. Still, would still be with us, and and the thing is, and the thing is, it didn't. You know, we're, we're uh, spoiler alert, we're going to continue our talk about Gene Roddenberry. <laughs> and, you know, a big a big part of your your thesis with this is, you know, his narcissism. Yeah. And the thing is, if we hadn't had no shit, a clinical malignant narcissist in the White House, mm-hmm. the decision would have been made. OK, look, we got to we got to, you know, tell people to stay home. We got to tell people to take this seriously. But to him, to to. Donald J. fucking Trump mm-hmm. telling anybody to take the, the 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 virus seriously sounded weak. Yeah, and it was more important to him not to sound weak than it was to actually get a handle on this fucking thing. Mm-hmm. And you know, Mitch McConnell probably would have stood in the way of of relief anyway, mm-hmm. because he's Mitch fucking McConnell. He's another one who's going to wind up hopefully consigned to the ash bin of history. Um, you know, and, and, you know, Damnatio Memoriae, Damnatio Memoriae, Memoriae, uh, you know, um, is too good for him. Um, you know, he probably would have been an obstructionist about it, but like just saying, okay, no, look, we're, we're, we are, we are telling everybody nationwide, stay home for six weeks. Mm-hmm. Just in in March of last year, everybody stay home for six weeks, and by the end of that, we knew, you know, by by mid April, we knew no everybody needs to be wearing a mask. And when the lockdown ended, ha- just tell everybody show up to every event with everybody in your administration wearing a goddamn mask, and don't try to politicize it. Don't worry about, yep. well, you know, it makes me, it makes me look like I'm afraid of getting sick. Of course you're afraid of getting sick. You're fucking mortal. Mm-hmm. 
How fucking old are you? Mm-hmm. How many health conditions do you have that you haven't told the American people about? Of course you're afraid of getting sick because you're not a fucking moron. Yeah. But instead, but instead, he chose to look like fucking John Wayne, which meant that all of his mouth breather worst fucking supporters, you know, have have refused to wear masks mm-hmm. because it turned into a political issue. It turned into my rights. No, motherfucker. You don't have a right to expose everyone around you to a preventable, fatal, lethal fucking pathogen. Mm-hmm. And and we shouldn't even be having that debate. Well, I'm going to back so, you up. And so oh, anybody, God. anybody, sorry, I'm, I'm not quite done venting. Anybody who wants to come at me with, well, you know, you can't blame Donald Trump for a virus. I can't blame him for the existence of the virus, but I sure as shit can blame him for 430,000 Americans being dead that didn't have to be. Well, I would say that you can actually blame him for it because he defunded the very thing that was put into place to prevent viruses around the world. Uh, and he, you know, that was created uh, by the previous president. So, mm-hmm. yeah, actually, you can lay this at his feet, and the deaths of every single one of those people can be laid at his feet, uh, in addition to his bungling of handling it after he... I mean, he basically took the supports out from the pier, and then people started falling off into shark-infested waters. Yeah. So, yeah, you can blame all that on him. Uh, so, Just, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's bloody awful, and it could have been prevented, and it could have been fixed, and we could have found... A lot of ways to deal with it at every step along the way. And now we're at the point where people are throwing up their hands saying, well, it's impossible. And it's like, well, we actually haven't tried doing things the right way yet. So (laughs) let's give that a shot first before we throw in the towel. And and again, it's, it's been immensely harder on plenty of my students' parents. And plenty of my students. Uh, it's It's been way harder on so many more people that aren't in my position. Uh, I'm not saying that it's not. I, I've known people who've lost businesses who have who are stuck doing um, work that is just getting them uh, further and further into debt, uh, unable to feed their families regularly, stuff like that. Uh, those things are all there. And the problem with that is... Um, the existence of those things doesn't mean that those things are okay. Those things should not be happening. And at this point, when we finally have somebody who can actually put together a coherent plan for recovery, this is not the time to throw in the towel because we, we did our best absent anything useful. Now we Hmm. have something useful. So we need to continue to do our best. And I totally get the fatigue. Uh, just as people are probably like wondering how far forward they should have scrubbed on this because we're still going on about it. So because we're still, yeah. Let's, let's talk so, about a narcissist from the 70s instead. Uh, yeah. Gene Roddenberry. So, yeah. Gene Roddenberry. There we go. When it was, when it was quaint. So uh, Roddenberry. <laughs> <laughs> and, and oh, that's just, you know how he is. Yeah, it's Gene, yeah. you know. Uh, Roddenberry was very conscious of what he was doing on his show. Okay. He deliberately was writing what Nichelle Nichols once called one hour morality plays. He absolutely was. And when interviewed, he was very clear in his intent. He said, quote, I have no belief that Star Trek depicts the actual future. It depicts us now things we need to understand about that. 
which is exactly what science fiction is for. Oh yeah, well yeah, it's it's the it's the funhouse mirror mm-hmm. uh, that that allows us to to you know get a look at at you know the the things in our society that get most distorted in the picture mm-hmm. to figure out you know who we who we are. <clears throat> and, you know, um, yeah. go ahead. Oh, I was gonna say, and he does it in a way that uses all the primary colors and very colorful backgrounds because color TV is coming oh, onto yeah. the scene. Like this, this is absolutely part of the color TV movement. So if you ever wonder why they always had such bright, vibrant colors in space and didn't just all wear the same jumpsuits, uh, it's because color TV was brand new and this is a great way to explore that. Oh yeah, no, it was, it was a huge technological flex. Mm -hmm. Uh, what I, what I, I just found this out, Mm -hmm. uh, the other day, Uh, um, you know, in, in the original series, of course, you know, uh, security and engineering guys all wore red, mm-hmm. uh, science, medical and technical people all, all wore blue technical wore any operations of the ship were red. So technical okay. was part right. of it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So but, science but and, and, science, and medicine science, medical, was blue. Yeah. Uh, was blue and then command. Yes. Was green. Is that why he had the stupid blouse? Yeah, here's mm. the thing. So, so it looks to most people, and now of course this this was even more interesting to me because I'm actually very very mildly yellow green colorblind. Oh, I have a form of colorblindness that when I get to a certain couple of pages on the on the colorblindness check, every time they check my vision, I'm like, I'm not going to be able to tell you that answer. Mm. Like I know I'm just not going to be able to tell you because certain shades of yellow and green look the same to me. And it turns out because of the way early color television treatment worked and the way studio lighting and the fabric that those uniforms were made out of operated, Mm -hmm. those uniforms look yellowish on the screen. Yeah, they're goldenrod. Yeah, but they were actually lime green. Oh, wow. Okay. And then that wound up getting codified. Then when they went to TNG, they just said... Oh, They're it's gold. tan now. Yeah, it's, it's a gold. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, it was actually lime green. Uh, <laughs> okay. If if you actually look at the uniforms in the Smithsonian, it's a it's a green tunic. Oh man, that's that's definitely a place that I wish I'd gone in the before times. So yeah, no kidding. So well, okay. So post war America. Okay, uh, in the nineteen through the nineteen fifties, there's a growing yes. and more visible civil rights struggle, capturing the imagination of mainstream America. And through the nineteen sixties, white women especially were pushing for greater equality for women as well. Well, there. Yeah. Let me back that up a bit. It's not that black women weren't pushing for it. It's that uh, that was not seen as something separate from the civil rights movement. Yeah. by mainstream America. Yeah, uh, the dominant culture of... Yeah. Exactly. So you yeah. have two seemingly separate issues going on there, although they're absolutely braided together. Uh, Intersectionality was not a known right. or or explored quantity in, yes. the, in the 50s and 60s. Yes. So, yeah. So, the times in which Gene Roddenberry was writing were extremely volatile, volatile and fraught with change. Uh, now he absolutely did try to cast a female first officer in the pilot played by his later wife, Majel Barrett. Now that pilot failed, 
uh, and the women on the first pilot, if you go back and you watch the first pilot, I think it's called The Cage, um, you, you watch it and you'll see that the women are wearing trousers, pants-based mm. uniforms that are essentially unisex. Uh, scandal. Uh, well, sixties. Well, I don't know that it's necessarily scandal so much as it is that's not going to market well. So let's yeah, put okay. them in minis. And oh, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That'll 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 market a lot better to and, your target audience. And if, our target you know, audience what? is going to want to see men in these strong positions. So could you? Could you? Yeah. If you're going to include the women, can you push them sideways a little bit? And so they did. So uh, they, they redid another pilot. And this new pilot has Spock as the first officer instead of number one, uh, which, by the way, number one came from that cage, that episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, so Spock is now the first uh, officer. There is a woman on the cast, and now she's wearing a red miniskirt, and she's in the background, literally. She is uh, a space secretary. I mean, well, she's a communications officer. She's fourth in charge. But she's never actually yeah, put in charge. Never, she never actually gets command of the ship. And uh, there's also an Asian I tell you man. What, I would, I would pay money. I would put money down mm-hmm. to see an episode, or or to see, or to see somebody write something where Uhura winds up running things. They had episodes and like, like that, and like Rex shit. And NBC kept tink- tinkering with it and saying, basically going back and saying, no, you need to rewrite this scene. And Nichelle Nichols would fight hard. She called it pitching a bitch. Um, she would fight hard to have her character do shit. So at one point, she actually runs the helm um, when everybody else is down on the planet. Uh, and there's a few times where she gets more lines in. But they also uh, they had a uh, pan-Asian because he wasn't full Japanese because the name Sulu isn't necessarily a Japanese name. Uh, they had a pan-Asian helmsman. Uh, who previously had been the ship's physicist? Okay. Um, so you have, uh, you have really, a, yeah. Um, and so you have a ethnically diverse cast. You have just one woman now. Yeah. Um, but they're kind of background, and they're a little bit more scenery. They don't get all the good lines necessarily. Um, they are ubiquitous. Women are ubiquitous, and and uh, it's it's a more diverse cast, but it is background. And some people blame the culture at the time, and you, I think there's a very valid argument to be made there because the studio owned the show and was was making edit decisions from the jump, and the studio kept lowering the budget every year. Yeah. Um, now especially given that the original pilot. Uh, and the role of women in that in that particular episode, uh, most of the women in the series that made it to air were there largely to show us the fear the crew was facing, or the danger and ruthlessness or seductibility uh, uh, that the crew was facing uh, with the the bad guy of the week. Okay, that, now, that makes sense. And and they're all placed in support positions. Yes. Like you don't you don't ever see women on an away team as red shirts, right? You don't ever see women in any kind of position giving orders to a to a male character, right? 
and and you know you have Uhura who is the communications officer mm-hmm. and you have Nurse Chapel who's a nurse. Mm-hmm. They're helpers. In the very yeah, in the very 1960s idea of a nurse being like the personal assistant to the doctor. Mm-hmm. And they're like, helpers to the men. And they're in traditionally <clears throat> women's occupations. Yes. Yeah. As you so. said last episode, Uhura is basically kind of a space secretary. Yeah. 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 And and I will say this. At one point, she does pseudo-seduce Mirror Universe Sulu. Um, but that's, oh, yeah. that's still a very feminine wiles kind of thing to do. Well, it's a very feminine wiles thing to do, but I, I think we need to give an awful lot of credit. Mm-hmm. To um, uh, any any to Nichelle Nichols for succeeding in, in seducing any version of Sulu because <laughs> knowing what we know now about George Takei, like you know, yeah, I well, had to. Yeah, I, I had to. I was like, gonna say on. an actor can act though, you know. Yeah, but, no, yeah, I, I, you're absolutely I know, right. But I had to make the joke. Yeah, maybe that's bad of me, but I had to make the joke. I, I totally get it. I I just picture myself as as the sandwich uh, between the two of them. So. Uh, oh. <laughs> man, there you go. My goodness. So the other women, aside from Ahura, who is fourth in charge, who is very competent, um, who, who does all kinds of things. She has generative lines, not just responsive lines in, in the show. Um, the other two women that really kind of are in the show more frequently are, or as free. Not as frequently, but it, with any frequency, would be Yeoman Rand. Um, you remember Yeoman Janice Rand, big old blonde beehive. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, how could I forget? Yeah, Yeoman. Are you kidding? Yeah, <laughs> uh, I remember Yeoman Rand and Nurse Chapel as seven-year-old me. Yeoman Rand, very <laughs> vividly. Yes. Well, and Yeoman Rand absolutely played into the, um, like, at one point she had some sort of dread disease and she says to Kirk something along the lines of, I've tried for so long to get you to look at my legs and now look at them and they're all diseased and and crusted over with blue shit or something like that. Um, And she brings him his coffee and she makes him take his pills and she... And at one point, Kirk says something to the effect of like, and I want to talk to the person who thought it was a good idea to give me a female yeoman. Um, so, yeah, I mean, she basically is there to be the ditzy blonde, the the damsel uh, who needs rescuing. And Nurse Chapel is mm-hmm. absolutely there to be, like you said, the personal assistant to the doctor. So they're regulated purely to acceptable in the 1960s women's roles. Um. Other women that show up on the show are typically uh, important for only that episode, and they're essentially a plot device. Um, and I think, here's what I think. I think that Gene Roddenberry actually thought that he was being woke at his time. I think th- because, I mean, he is getting more women yeah. on TV. And it's a working ship. It's not a pleasure cruise. There's not like, you know, bo- Port of Honolulu. Um so yeah. he absolutely is showing women in the workforce working alongside men as ostensible equals, but usually working more for the men, but still. Mm-hmm. So I think for his yeah. time, you well, know, he, it's, he yeah. was, he was the woke bay of his time. Yeah. You know, which, which is more an indictment I, I, yeah, of the time. Know, and, that's, and that's of course a ticket Joss Whedon 
Yeah. No. Well, yeah. No, th- that's true, but still. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I, yes, it's an indictment of the times, but, you know, um, it's, it's again... Still progress. Uh, another example of, of a of a liberal creative white guy of Wokens, mm-hmm. you know, for for thing don't even really earn Wokens. Yeah, like the whole concept of Wokens is a bullshit idea in the first place. But yeah, yeah, you you know, and and yeah, and and, and yes, everybody listening, I am going after Joss Whedon in the same breath uh, because he deserves it. Yeah. And I would I would also point out that while he is increasing representation, the way that he casted the show was inherently predatory, sexually predatory toward the women. So any good that he gets on screen comes at a cost. That's fair. Yeah. So now I'm going to switch a little bit here to to ethnicity. Uh, So by 1966, the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act had already been passed. So Star Trek was coming onto the scene with the unrest of white supremacy struggling against those things. And from 61 forward, if you remember, Roddenberry definitely had the goal of an ethnically diverse crew. I talk about this in in the previous episode. And uh, you had Sulu, you had Uhura, you later had Chekhov, which Chekhov was actually an effort to get young girls to tune in because of the monkeys. Um, You also... Yeah. You also... So Chekhov had an accent. So did Scotty. So you have two foreign-sounding fellows. You have two people of color. And you also have Spock, who is not just an alien, but a half-human, half-Vulcan alien. Okay. Which is important okay. because yeah. it speaks to uh, multiracial families. And and as you pointed out in the last episode, mm-hmm. loving the love wait okay, loving was what, sixty six? Loving versus Virginia, I believe was sixty six, yeah. So yeah, that's that's definitely a, a cutting edge kind of social issue. Mm-hmm. Now, the thing about Sulu is he is, how do I say this? Um, he is Cato. <laughs> like, he's he's the driver for the captain. Like, functionally, the helmsman, that's what he does, you know? And okay. he he's essentially Captain Kirk's driver. Now, he's mentioned, similarly to Uhura, as being very competent in several ways. They mention his combat capabilities at some point, and they don't, like, say, oh, yeah, he's really good at kung fu. They don't do anything like that. They're just like, oh, he's a very capable combat um, officer. Uh, he's well, a physicist. He knows a lot about botany. He's a swashbuckler. Um, so, like, he's... I'm, he's... I'm so glad you brought the swashbuckler oh, yeah. thing in uh, because, you know, the thing is, um, I I love the fact that, uh, you know, the, the episode where everybody gets infected with the, you know, make some crazy virus, mm-hmm. uh, you know, he doesn't turn into a samurai caricature. Right. He turns into D'Artagnan. Yes. And, and... Um, and number one, it is so clear, like looking at that episode all these years later, it is so clear how much fun George Takei was having with that. Yeah. Um, and, and the fact that you saw 
an Asian American actor shirtless, mm-hmm. by the way. Mm-hmm. Like, let's talk about that for a minute. I don't know. I don't know how much credit Roddenberry gets for that or his writing room gets for that, but there's there's an important kind of thing going on there. There is. You know, um, and and the fact that they didn't play to a stereotype with that, that like, mm-hmm. you know, Hikaru, and, and I am going to push back a little bit about, you know, Pan-Asian, I think. Well, Hikaru is Pan- a Japanese name, but H- Sulu is, immensely... is a sea that is out in the Pacific. Yeah, okay, all right, yeah. that makes sense. I, I see what you're saying there, yeah. but I, I, I think, I anyway... Because um, the I, other argument is that you basically get a a, a, a J.K. Rowling is a zation of his name, like either okay. either he's Pan Asian or like Roddenberry was lazy with coming up with a you know like you know <laughs> whereas Sanchez and, it's like eh. you know, little 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 column A little column B yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> you know so but but you know the the fact that they didn't you know, have it be, well, you know, he's, his, his background is, you know, Japanese. So he thinks he's Toyotomi Hideyoshi or something. Right. right. You know, it's, it's no, no, his, his fantasy life is, you know, he's going to have a psychotic break. Who's he going to turn into is fucking D'Artagnan. Yes. A Frenchman from the 1700s. Like, I, it's, it's brilliant. Mm -hmm. And again, George Takei is having so much fun in that part. Oh yeah. Um, you know, and, and I, I, yeah. So in just bringing up to case, uh, not to case, sorry, Sulu's combat abilities. I, I had to bring that up. No, um, totally valid. Because as a, as a sword nerd, mm-hmm. it's, that's a huge deal to me. Yeah. So the, the problem is, is that that's kind of one of the only times that he gets to do much of anything. Uh, in in the show, because very often his his lines turn into something like, "They're up ahead, Captain. Captain, what do you want us to do? Warp factor five, Captain." And it's just literally just responding. Yeah. And and those are sometimes the only lines that he gets. And then he gets to flip buttons. So yeah. Uh, now a lot of this reduction yeah. of the roles of women and people of color had to do with network control. Uh, because again, they're doing that pandering kind of thing to the quote southern market, but they're also, I mean, it's also the northern market, it's also the western market. Um, and a lot of it was just also how jo- Gene Roddenberry wrote. Um, either yeah, let's, let's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, let's, let's not, let's not sugarcoat anything. It's, it's the white market, it's, it's yes. the, the majority market in the country at the time, dominant culture yes was just not ready to give you know a real you know command authority to people who were not yeah so either he's writing gene rodberry is writing because he knows the studio is going to object to certain things anyway so he's doing a little bit of self-censorship uh or gene rodberry is a hack um and I again, little column A, lot of column B. Uh, <laughs> little of column A. Yeah. Little, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And as a result, while people of color were frequently seen, they were very, very infrequently heard or doing very much. 
Star Trek also, and and again, this is, I mean, you, it, it's a military organization on some level. So of course the captain is giving orders and stuff like that. But captain never really gave orders to Spock or Bones, um, and they got to do all kinds of shit. Um, now S- Star Trek also had the first interracial kiss on TV. Um, when Khan, played by Ricardo yep. Maltaban, uh, kissed a white yeoman to seduce her into his scheming to take over the Enterprise. That actually happens before mm. the famous kiss. So, okay. Mm-hmm. But here's a question. Okay. With the, in the context of that episode, mm-hmm. Maltaban coded as non-white. He's called Nunyan Singh Khan. Which I think how much how yeah. much awareness how much awareness would a would a nineties white audience have had of what it meant for him to be named Khan Noonien Singh? How much would would a true true pimply thirteen year old nerd in <laughs> Poughkeepsie said that's an Indian name? Like yeah, true. Well, and also as opposed to it's the you know, it's it's the far future. People's names might sound weird, right? And also, I'm just saying, I, I yeah, I, mm. yeah. There's also a couple other things there. One, sing doesn't spell with an H when you say it out loud. Uh, two, uh, so you could get around it that way. And two, um, the idea of Indian folks, folks uh, from East India, um. Being called white was a thing in America because when immigration happened from Asia, there were court cases to determine whether or not they were considered Caucasian because is Caucasian just just defined in terms of not being black or not being what, you know, so you get into all kinds of really shitty versions of racism, Mm -hmm. racism and how that goes. So and that's why nobody really notices (laughs) this one. Yeah. Also, the fact that Ricardo Maltaban, I believe, was Puerto Rican, um, playing a a Sikh, uh, but uh, you know he he is kind of coded white uh, or swarthy. <laughs> yeah, sing, sing. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, yeah. Sing. Well, so. like you know, okay, you know, Southern European maybe, but right, you know, swarthy, um, swarthy. Hold on a sec. Yeah, I'm looking up Ricardo Montalban here oh, okay. to see where he was yeah. born. So the um, the one where Mex- Mexican American. Oh, okay. Born in Mexico. Okay. Uh, yeah, in Mexico City oh. in 1920. Maybe so. it's because he played on Fantasy Island that I thought he was from an island. <laughs> Could be. I think that is true. Could, I think that's I think where that's I got probably that. Probably the association you made in yeah. your head. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I had thought he was Spanish. Oh, interesting. I I had. Yeah. Like completely not, and and I think and I think and and this is awful of me, but I'm going to admit it's it's because so many of the roles he played carried such a patrician air about them. Yeah, that's fair. You know, I, I could see you thinking, oh, he's Iberian. Yeah, yeah. Like so. no, nope, Mexico City. Now patrician Mexican, mm-hmm. so you know, uh, hev- heavily European background Mexican. Yeah, but yeah. Still. Yeah, anyway. <laughs> so Kirk was telekinetically forced to kiss Uhura at one point, and that was significant on all the layers that it was. Uh, it was the first kiss of a white man and a black woman on TV, as far as I could find. Uh, it was considered a big goddamn deal at the time. 
Also, mm-hmm. I'd point out that they were forced to do it. It wasn't their agency. It wasn't their choice. Uh, but I would say that Star Trek, despite the fact that you had all of that, is still hella racist because of the way that Scotty and McCoy talk uh, to Spock all the time. <laughs> yeah. So, but it's true. it's safe to be racist against him because he's an alien who passes for white. So it's kind of okay. Um, wait, wait, yeah. stop. Back okay. up. He's an alien who passes for human. Yeah, it's it's what I said. Same same thing. Same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah okay. Gross. I see what you did there. Yeah. Yuck. Yeah. yeah, no, and true, and and it should also be noticed, noted, of course, that uh, uh you know, uh, Doctor McCoy was very clearly from a southern background. Yeah, yeah. So, make of that what you will. Mm-hmm. So now there's also an episode with the guys who have the black and the white faces. <laughs> and I'm gonna go ham on this. So this is this is Gene Roddenberry's uh, uh, attempt to be Rod Serling, uh, right? Right down to just yep. exactly how ham-fisted his metaphor was. Well, and and this was third season, so budget was a problem. Um, for instance, those guys both had to wear gloves because that way they didn't have to paint their hands. Oh, you're kidding! Nope. Really? Yeah. So, also, I think this might be the first that tight. Yeah, uh, this also. Well, one of them had an invisible ship. <laughs> so, um, but this also, uh, one of them was Frank right. Gorshin, by the way. Um, and well, yeah, and I think if I recall correctly, this episode is the first episode that you see two moose knuckles on the same screen. So, now this show. This particular episode, uh, which is called, uh, let's see, the, oh, God damn it, that last battlefield of yours or something like that. Um, it aired January 10th, 1969, which means that it was filmed or it was uh, written and filmed the prior year. Now, the prior year was 1968, as we all know. So this airs 10 days before. 10 or so days before uh, Nixon takes office. Um, But yeah, it was written and filmed the prior year and it had been an idea as early as season one, but 1968 was a much more fertile year for such ideas. Uh, Just for, for uh, side note, Mm -hmm. uh, the title of the episode is let that be your last battlefield. That's what it was. 15th episode of the third season of the original American science fiction television show, Star Trek, according to Wikipedia. There you go. So, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated in April of 1968. Over a mm. hundred cities erupted in riots when he was killed. King had been a voice for moral nonviolent protest, and his assassination led many people to believe that the cultural white supremacy clearly wasn't listening to nonviolence as a tactic. Therefore, violent resistance to white supremacy seemed a pretty appropriate response now. He- yeah. 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 Uh, white businesses were often targeted during these riots, but not white churches or white schools. So even during riots, black people are doing better than white people who aren't rioting. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Watts had already happened in 1965. 
as a result, because yes. again, this shit's getting filmed in LA. Uh, as a result, uh, there are several community leaders, activists, uh, as well as the LAPD, and they work together to help avert a repeat of Watts. This was also true in Boston, thanks to a James Brown concert uh, in Indianapolis. Was it, was it, What's was that? it Boston? It was. We've, we've mentioned the James Brown concert before, yeah. and we couldn't remember in the earlier episode, we weren't sure what city it was. Yeah. So no, I, it, I, it was Boston. Yes, okay. it was. Yeah. Okay. Uh, it was also true in Indianapolis because RFK gave a pretty good impromptu speech about it. Yeah. And it was also true in most of New York, owing to the fact that the mayor of New York drove straight into Harlem and told the leaders in Harlem that the community leaders in Harlem, that he is working against poverty and let's please not like fall back from what we're doing. So by and large, most of the riots in New York were very small, very localized, and they weren't really riots. They were, you know, attacks on buildings and a little bit of looting. Okay. The three cities that got it the hardest were D.C., Chicago, and Baltimore. Uh, and this is largely due to the tremendous problems that had already predated King's assassination in April. In Washington, D.C., it was especially acutely felt, probably because it's the seat of the government. Yeah. Now, get this. Uh, there are riots going on, right? There, there are people who are breaking shit. There are people who are stealing shit. There are people who are setting fires. Lyndon Johnson ordered the National Guard to be deployed. And machine guns were mounted on the steps of the state cap or of the uh, Capitol building. Really? Yes. Machine guns. Machine guns. I'm gonna have to look that up. Yeah. Not not because I doubt you at all, but because I I it's, I want to see. Yeah. It's hard to wrap your head around. Oh man. Well, you got to keep in mind a lot of the people rioting were black, so it makes sense <laughs> to call in the National Guard and yeah, mount machine you know. guns to defend the Capitol. I mean, yeah, well, yeah. you know, as as recent you know, history were, has shown, <clears throat> yeah, you know, if they were if they were bourgeois, you know, white people, right, then, whose you know, moms drove okay. them in, Just yeah, let him let him let him in, yeah. who could afford tickets to get there and uh, organize, yeah, yeah, and and hotel rooms to stay in, mm -hmm. yeah. In Chicago, Mayor Daley encouraged his police to shoot to maim the looters. Even Mayor Daley has a a better moral compass about looters than what we saw this summer. You remember when the, the looting starts, the shooting starts? Yeah. Mayor yeah, Daley, the guy yeah. who was in charge odd, of odd the Chicago police like... riots during the ne Democratic National Convention later that year was saying, well, no, 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 don't kill the looters. Yeah, same, same here. Yeah. Maim them. No, 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 just, just injure, shoot, yeah. shoot to disable. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, it's funny how, how when the looting starts, the shooting starts, somehow doesn't apply when we are, again, petit bourgeois white people. Yeah, well, that's, Looting yeah. from the Congress building. Right. Or any time a like sports I, I team wins. I cannot, I literally cannot, well, yeah, okay, there's that too. But, like, I literally cannot get over the images of that one dopey-faced fuck with a knit cap carrying the the uh, lectern, mm -hmm. podium, I don't mm -hmm. know what word it would be for it. It's a podium because it know, goes all the way to the floor. Out of, out of yeah. the Congress building with that. Okay, yeah, podium that that you know carrying it 
look like he's going to carry it. Like, what, what the fuck are you going to One, what the fuck are you going to do with that? Number two, he has this happy, happy smile on his fucking face mm-hmm. that just completely reveals the fact that there's no, no concept that he's going to have to face any fucking consequences for storming a building, at least being tangentially involved in the murder of a law enforcement officer. Mm-hmm. And and stealing government property. Well, I could tell you How a lot about him actually. Entitled do you have to be? Really? Yeah, my cousin taught his kid. Really? Yeah. I'm sure the child was a perfect angel. Well, the reason that she had to call him in was because the child was uh, spitting all over his math test instead of taking it. Um, and then the meeting with the dad went so disturbingly that she said he's persona non grata on this campus unless my administrator is in the room with me. I am utterly unsurprised by any of that. Dude has five kids. Uh, his other kids like are in classes where they, they cannot bring up politics because th- these kids will just start trumpanzying. Um and uh, yeah, this is all elementary, by the way. My my cousin's an elementary <sighs> school teacher. Sweet Jesus. Yup. I I can't begin like 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 I am utterly unsurprised to find any of that out, and mm-hmm. I'm still deeply Stop, yeah. deeply saddened. Yeah. Like by all of it. Yeah. Like like I feel I I feel badly for the kids. Mm-hmm. I can't begin to tell you how badly I feel for the guy's wife. Like, She's a doctor, and then and then your cousin, Mike. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. This is what happens wow. when you get involved in a cult. You do so much to unpack things. there. Yeah. So meanwhile, back to Chicago. Daly's ordering yeah, the the police to oh, shoot to anyway, me. Sorry. Yep. Sorry. Sorry. Uh, the south okay. side of Chicago, which is a largely black uh, enclave of Chicago, uh, was actually fairly untouched by the riots because the gang leaders in those communities came together with the uh, with each other, even though they were rival gangs, and they came together to keep their neighborhoods safe from the riots, largely due to the fact that Martin Luther King had worked with them in 1966 when he went up there. Um. Over a quarter of the deaths during the nationwide riots happened really? in Chicago. Yeah. Oh there, wow. Okay. There's now there's a reason. <laughs> so I had not known that that can't done. Okay. So there's there's a reason that King had previously said, "quote I've been in many demonstrations all across the South, but I can say that I have never seen even in Mississippi and Alabama." Mobs as hostile and hate-filled as as I'm seeing in Chicago. So, again, a quarter of the deaths during the riots over a week were were in Chicago. And then Baltimore. Gee, many Christmas. Yeah. In Baltimore, the governor of Maryland's over-the-top militant response and then subsequent blaming of the black community leaders for not doing more to quell the riots... Uh, was so over the top and so egregious. Do you know what happened to the uh, governor of Maryland as a result? He got elected to the Senate. Nope, vice president. 
Spiro Agnew. Fuck. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> so in other cities, uh, King's murder had <sighs> had been the spark that ignited the tinder. So in other cities, uh, yeah, King's murder uh, really just got things going uh, because there had been so much underlying br- brutality by the police. Um, there, there were uneven economic relief programs. There was redlining, the ghettoization of certain neighborhoods, etc. The week after King was murdered, over 20,000 people were arrested, thousands were injured, and 42 were dead. Again, more than a quarter of them in Chicago. Many of these cities took years to recover, and if you really want to predict the 1992 Rodney King verdict riots, you could have looked at any number of these cities. You could have you could have done exactly a one-to-one and just replaced the word Korean with white in some of these cities, and you would have been spot on. So, that's what's going on <sighs> when the actual writer of this episode, Gene L. Kuhn, had written it under a pseudonym because he wasn't supposed to write for Paramount at the time because he had worked for Universal Studios at that time. Kuhn had been a showrunner when Roddenberry took off mid-season during the first season, and he's actually the one credited with making a lot of Star Trek as good as it was. So I did some digging into Kuhn, and he grew up in the Midwest. Uh, he grew up with a family, or he was part of a family that eventually moved to Glendale, California. I think his dad was working in poultry or something. Um, his dad was also a sergeant in the Marines. Uh, Gene Kuhn had been very active on the radio in Omaha. He had been part of 4-H, the Boy Scouts, and the marching band. And I mention these things because he clearly was used to working in a group, in an organization. And then when the war broke out, when World War II broke out, he joined the Marines. And what I found was interesting... Oh, his dad was in the Army. I'm sorry. What I found was interesting, though, is that Kuhn was in the Marines for the totality of the war, and never once did he get deployed outside of the United States. I couldn't figure out why. And then he also served in the Korean War. So what did War. he do? I like, don't know. I, I couldn't find that. I, I think there was... His work with the radio might have been part of that. Um, his expertise in radio. You know? Okay. Kind, so, of, kind of the same. Yeah. Like a dispatcher like, like of some the sort. Fact. Yeah. Okay. So, and okay. I, I couldn't find if he ever did any combat during the Korean War, but he served during the Korean War as well until 1952. Now, I mention all of that because, again, clearly here's a man who's used to working with an organization who's used to having a place in an organization and who had an early aptitude for actual show business, having been in radio. He wrote for TV starting in 1956, and by the time Star Trek came about, his moral lesson-oriented Western scripts had drawn the attention of NBC executives. He wrote a lot of Westerns that had like that strong moral compass, and he helped rewrite a lot of the scripts for Star Trek. So... Kuhn gets okay. yeah. Kuhn gets the credit for creating Khan, for creating the Klingons, Zephram Cochran, the Prime Directive, the name of the United really? Federation of Planets. Yeah, all of this was under his tenure. There were his scripts while he was running the show, and even Starfleet Command's structure. 
He also helped to kind of set up the relationship between Spock and uh, and Kirk and uh, McCoy. He's like, no, no, these guys are like the daemons of Kirk, and they're going to argue with each other. And by all accounts, well, you yeah. know, it's it's they're they're the they're the, they're the power trio mm-hmm. uh, with with Kirk as the id. Uh, McCoy is the ego and Spock is the super ego. Mm, Kirk is, uh, I, I don't think that that one works there quite honestly, because Kirk is the one who's making all the decisions and the other two are essentially compassion and logic. Okay. Yeah. I see what you're saying, but by the yeah. same token, um, I'm going to, I'm going to push back a little bit because, mm-hmm. um, uh, Kirk is very clearly the the motive das id. Uh, you know, we, we gotta we gotta go out. We gotta we gotta we gotta get stuff done, and you know, fuck everything that moves. Um, oh yeah, that's all true too. You know, yeah. element of of the trio. Yeah. You know, uh, and and then you know McCoy McCoy is is you know let's let's you know look at the and and you know come up with with moral imperatives and then Spock is no no let's be logical that's that's kind of where the where the id ego ego thing comes in you're you know uh, uh Kirk is the decider mm-hmm. which it's just, kind of takes him out of the the id realm in that regard yeah because he's but moderating between I, I think, those two I think both can simultaneously kind of apply yeah, I mean, I think there's definitely shades yeah, of it. I, yeah, I think I think both can kind of simultaneously apply. Yeah. Yeah, you know, uh, and and also, of course, I'm I'm taking Power Trio and, and those three roles, you know, mm-hmm. straight off of the pages of TV tropes. Sure. Which, by the way, at some point, we probably ought to do an episode about just so I can get you to look at it, so you understand where I'm getting all these all these things from. Oh, I just thought you were hella smart. So, <laughs> you know, yeah, well, I mean, I'll take the credit there, sure. but. Sure. You know, I'm I'm also you know, cribbing an awful because part of part of being smart is knowing who to steal from. Oh, absolutely. So, yeah. You know. So by all accounts, too. Kuhn did a really so good anyway, job of running um, the show, but he also regularly argued with the big three. And when jo- Gene Roddenberry returned, uh, Kuhn and Roddenberry argued up until the point where Kuhn left midway through the second season. Still. Afterward, he contributed more than a dozen scripts, or more more like half a dozen, creeping up to a dozen, like seven or eight uh, scripts, including this episode. Now, initially, okay. NBC rejected this script, but then it came in under budget, and they were like, yeah, go for it. <laughs> and the plot is pretty straightforward. <laughs> I love Love it. They were they were like totally skittish about. Oh my god, this is this is so overtly like Rod Serling level. Some anvils need to be dropped. We can't touch this with a ten foot pole. Well, yeah, but it came in under budget. All right, do it. Yeah, greenlit. <laughs> like, like, like we're we're terrified of this. But wait, under budget, do it. Mm-hmm. Like, at the end of the day, almighty dollar. Yeah. So anyway, so. The the plot pretty straightforward. There's a character named Loke. I I haven't seen it in so long. I don't remember how to pronounce the name. So I'm gonna say it's Loke. Um, he is or Lokai. Lokai sounds better. He is an escaped refugee refugee from the planet Charon, 
and he stole a Federation shuttle, and the Enterprise happens to go across his path. He claims political asylum, essentially, and then Bele shows up. And each man is ink black on one side of his face and clown makeup white on the other side. However, they're opposites because one has the white on the left and one has the black on the left. Bele is hunting political traitors, so you can see where the obvious conflict is here. Loki and his people are considered inferior because they're black on the right side of their face and their bodies, whereas Bele's people are white on that side. And this surface difference isn't readily apparent to Kirk or the rest of the crew until Bailey points it out. And even the way that it's pointed out makes it seem silly and kind of arbitrary. However, the real issue is how Loki's people are treated. Because of Loki's people's inherent inequality, they're not able to take care of themselves and they require paternal guidance from Bailey's people who are considered superior. And Bailey even says something to the effect of, we take very good care of them. Loki tells the bridge crew about what racism is and what persecution is. And the bridge crew emphasizes that racism and persecution existed at one time, but it was a thing of the past in their society. See? How remarkably woke. Yes. Now... In this ensuing discussion, the men almost beat each other up, and Kirk says, that's it, you're both going to the brig. You can't talk like this to each other or attack each other on my bridge. However, both of these men, of course, have force fields around them that they just naturally create. Bailey then takes over the ship with his will, which is a thing you can do in 1960s sci-fi, and then Kirk orders the self-destruct sequence, which is, I think, the first time self-destruct as a thing actually existed. Um, eventually this issue gets resolved. Um, their difference is more than political though. And it's more than skin deep. And it's also more than 50,000 years old, but, and here's the important part to the enterprise, their differences are mostly academic and to the audiences, their differences are mostly academic. The real difference that anybody can actually see is the only one that needs to be pointed out, which is he's black on his left and I'm white on my left. Now, when they get to Charon, Mm -hmm. Loki and Bele fight and uh, they almost destroy the ship and then they chase each other through the ship and then they, they run down to their planets only to find that the whole planet has been wiped out by a war. And they're the only two people left of their respective peoples. And of course, they blame each other for it. And they carry on the war, continuing to attack each other, blinded by their hatred of each other. The tragedy of their mutual loss is completely uh, beyond them. And they're, they're attacking each other over it. So that's the episode. How very, very woke white guy in the middle. Yeah. So in late July 1967, the police of Detroit conducted a raid on a speakeasy operating after hours. While they conducted this raid, they expected to Mm. find a dozen people. They found 82 there who were celebrating the return of two young GIs from Vietnam. The police decided the best course of action here was to arrest all 82 people. A crowd gathered outside, angered by this overreaction to a party celebration of two black GIs. 
Now, to back up just a little bit, because no catalyst ever happens without a tremendous underpinning of institutional racism, the city of Detroit had been one of the major destinations for the Great Migration. This was pretty upsetting to the white folks who were living there, who continued, yes. yeah, who continued to find ways to segregate both de jure and de facto. The KKK was also very active in Michigan in the 1930s. As a result, they were terrorizing black people living in God's oven mitt. Malcolm X's dad was likely killed by a group called the Black <laughs> Legion of the KKK in Lansing. And after that, uh, they uh, this was after they'd already burned his family's home. So, uh, redlining... Oh, okay. you were gonna say something? No, just I I had not known that that was the case about Malcolm X's father. Well, it it's it's been written up as a suicide and a streetcar accident, but it's it's entirely likely and possible possible and likely um, that the uh, the they were called the Black Legion and they were specific to Lansing. Um, and they'd already burned his family's home down. So it's, it's very possible that they... Gee, many Christmas. Yeah. So redlining kept segregation pretty stringent in Detroit, and segregation kept black people pretty heavily policed. In 1956, the year that my mom was born, Orville Hubbard, the mayor of the town that she lived in, uh, who was called the Dictator of Dearborn, um, which was a suburb of Detroit, he bragged to an Alabama mm-hmm. newspaper. He said, quote, Negroes can't get in here. These people are so anti-colored, much more than you in Alabama. We watch it. Every time we hear of a Negro moving, for instance, we had one last year in a response quicker than to a fire. That's generally known. It's, it's known among our people, and it's known among the Negroes here. He also boasted, Jeez. yeah, and he got elected uh, 18 consecutive years in a row. Oh, my God. He also boasted of having the police come by and check on black families at all hours of the night until they got the hint. He, he called it like uh, doing too good a job. Wow. Yeah. Like, okay, here's, here's how bad it was. Uh, my mom grew up in Dearborn, okay? Um, they, the teacher left the class and their art class and the kids ran amok. I mean, just ran amok for like 10 minutes, you know, while the teacher was out dealing with something or other. When, when the teacher got back, the the whole class was torn up. Uh, she's what happened here? And the kids made up a story about how black men came in and threatened to shoot them if they got in the way of these guys destroying the classroom. The teacher believed them. What? Yeah. Like, okay, like, like mm-hmm. actually believed them or, or like bought into it because it was a socially acceptable lie. Probably option B, but either way. Yeah, I, I kind of don't know which one is worse. I'm, right. I'm going to admit, but like one of them is infinitely more believable. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and, on the one and, hand, she's either really, really stupid or just really, really racist and stupid. Wow. Yeah. Now, you combine wow. 
redlining with overpricing, and you have a pretty efficient fuel for growing discontent in the black community. And because you have all that separation, you have a tremendous amount of hostility in the white community. And while the black middle class in Detroit, owing to the auto industry, unionized labor, and very especially black entrepreneurship, while it was wealthier in most places or, or than it was in most places of the country, in many ways that also fanned the hatred of white supremacy. Well, yeah. Now that, the mayor that, of Detroit, that, oh, like same as in, same as in Tulsa, you know, mm-hmm. Black Wall Street got mm-hmm. destroyed for a reason. Yes. You know, it's the same. It's the same ugly shit all yeah. over again. Oh yeah. So the mayor of Detroit was a gentleman named Jerome Cavanaugh. He was an Irish Catholic uh, Democrat. He'd started some police reforms and some city reforms in 1961. Most importantly, probably, he'd created several commissions and staffed several positions with black people in positions that had decision-making power. So not just advisory, but decision-making. Also... He was trying to change the way that the police operated toward the black community. However, this meant disciplining police officers who perpetrated brutality toward black suspects and arrestees. Of course, this means that the police turned against the mayor and he got tagged with being too soft on crime because he said, hey, while you're arresting them, you can't just beat the shit out of them. Yeah. All the time. Yeah. Constantly. And there were also multiple studies at the time. Uh, Some were federal. uh, For instance, the Kerner Commission under President Johnson that were aimed at these problems already. And they found that prior to the riot in Detroit, 40, oh, by the way, spoiler alert, this is a riot in Detroit, 45% of police working, (laughs) 45% of police working in black neighborhoods were, quote, extremely anti-Negro. So you basically have a coin flip chance of having somebody who's who's considered extremely for the 1960s. And an additional 34% were prejudiced. So I don't do math very well, but that's damn near 80%. 8 and 10. Four-fifths yeah. of the time. So 20% of the time, you might run, in, run into one of the good ones. Please. Further... In 1967, 93% of the police force was still white, even though 30% of the city's residents were black. Mm. Now, the police were also regularly reported uh, in these reports as uh, reported in these reports. God dang. uh, As addressing black men as, quote, boy uh, and black women as honey or baby. Frequently, they'd arrest black people who did not have, quote, proper identification. The local press reported several questionable shootings and beatings of black citizens by officers, all leading up to the riots of 67. White Johns also would come into black neighborhoods frequently. So segregation stopped uh, apparently at the zipper um, and the police did very little. (laughs) Well, it always, it always has. And again, it's that predatory power stroke, you know, just. And the police didn't do shit to curtail prostitution for for the beginning. At some point, they actually did put some effort into it, uh, deploying in squadrons at one point. Um, But they were often accused of being on the take by the local press. So when this raid occurred, Mm. this was the dried tinder that was laying around, and the protests erupted into a riot, and the Detroit police just watched it first. Eventually... 
Governor George Romney. That that one guy's dad. Yeah. 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 Mitt's Mitt's papa. Yeah. Uh, he asked Johnson, "Do you think he named his son Mitt because they lived in Michigan?" That's a really good question. I don't know. I, I always thought Mitt would be short for something, but I never figured out what. I think Mitten. Yeah, well, I mean, that makes sense, <laughs> but... I, I also wonder if, like, uh, Richard Gephardt was... His parents were from Florida, so... <laughs> Did I ever tell you that story? Uh, no. <laughs> My grandma, she was very fond, fond... She still is, probably, but she's very fond of saying that when God rested on the seventh day, he'd put his hand down, and that's how you got Michigan. And I was 11 and didn't have a filter, and I asked, well, then how do you explain Florida? Yeah. <laughs> I did not uh, get dessert. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> so anyway. Like pissing on Cuba. <laughs> so. Uh, it could be pissed, sure. Yeah, um, you know. yeah, 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 could be. So eventually, Governor George Romney uh, asked President Johnson to send in federal troops. And Johnson said, oh, you first have to declare a state of insurrection per the requirements of the Insurrection Act of 1807. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Now, Romney was... Now, this is, again, July of 67. Romney... Uh, doesn't want to do that because he's thinking of running for president in 1968. See, back then, people would wait until the election year to start running. Yeah. Instead of well, start they, running they, they, two they, cycles before. They, they didn't have super PACs back then. Well, good so, point. Good point. You know. So that's right, because people got taxed back then. Yeah. Uh-huh. Well, people got taxed and corporations weren't weren't treated as people for First Amendment purposes. Right, whereas people were treated as property for, you know, when the looting shirt starts, the shooting starts. Purposes. Yeah, well, yeah, you know, there's that. Yeah. So Romney didn't want to ask Johnson for help because he was thinking that'll hurt his chances at a 68 presidential run. Meanwhile, because Kavanaugh was an Irish Catholic Democrat, he didn't want to ask Romney for help because he had worked really hard to forge good working relationships with the black community leaders in Detroit. And so he was reluctant to ask for, for federal and state troops. But by the second day, they needed to come in. So Johnson sent in the military per Romney's request. And addition, which I, that's what you would send if you're the president. So I don't, I don't know why I was like, oh, and he sent the military. Of course he did. Um, additionally, state and National Guard troopers came in. 5,500 various troops occupied the city. And I do mean occupied the city because they came in with tanks. Um, yeah. There was a rumor uh, that there were snipers and there were actually a few snipers, but the the fear grew way out of proportion to what was actually there. The military did what it does best in a policing the civilians uh, situation. They overreacted and they opened up from a tank into what they thought was sniper fire. Turns out someone was lighting a cigarette. Uh, they opened up with a 50 caliber machine gun. They killed a four year old little girl. Later, the National Guardsman who had opened fire was exonerated in her killing. The Detroit police were increasing their brutality during these riots uh, against anybody who was arrested. They beat them severely. They also sexually assaulted several women that they arrested. All told, there were 43 dead by the time it was over. 
7,231 had been arrested. Property damage totaled around $50 million, driving up insurance rates in the black neighborhoods, which, of course, slowed regrowth. 412 buildings had been damaged enough that they actually needed to be demolished. Now, of the 43 who were dead, 33 were black, 10 were white. 24 of those, who uh, of, of the black people who had been killed, were shot by police, National Guard, or federal troops. Four of the white people who had been killed were shot by police, National Guard, and federal troops. One white person uh, touched a downed power line, and one black person touched a downed power line. I found that interesting. Um, there were a couple murders. There's, hmm. there's no getting around that. Um and and that that was true. But if you look, it's a majority of the state killing citizens. Now I mention all of this because at the end of the episode that we were talking about, the footage that Star Trek used to show the burned out planet was footage from the Detroit riots in 1967. <clears throat> So Roddenberry yeah. is absolutely telling us about ourselves at that time. Yes, he is. He's consciously doing it. This is an important thing. This is representational. This is absolutely 100% true. Cannot deny this. Good for him for doing this. And then Kirk gives his soliloquy at the end. He but I yeah. wish he'd kind of... Uh... Go ahead. Okay. My, my point can wait until after Kirk's soliloquy. Yeah. So Kirk gives a soliloquy. He does not acknowledge that either of them was right or wrong. He says, uh, but all that mattered for them or to them was their hate. Despite the fact that Loki had told him about the apartheid that he suffered under Bele's people, and Bele didn't deny it, in fact, just justified it. But yeah, sure, both sides are equally wrong. And that's largely because white America totally saw it as both sides being totally equal, despite the power disparity, despite the attempts otherwise, despite the murder of black activists, despite the actual arguments of black separatists, white America saw it as just as bad and just as extreme as the KKK. So when the Black Panthers wanted to feed children, that was the same as the KKK lynching people. Uh, most of white America only saw a fierce and uncontrollable hatred from both sides against those who were opposed to them. Not looking at the actual reasons, just, wow, you're just so concerned about winning. Much like Bele and Lokai in that episode. The message to them was simple. Hatred and violence will bring about everyone's destruction. And I do mean simple. Like the colors being arbitrary. It's just that simple. Now, to bring it back. Well, actually, you were going to make a point, and then I'll bring it back. Well, yeah, no, I mean, my my point is is pretty straightforward. It's it's just that you know, it it takes a very particular kind of privilege mm -hmm. to not only witness that happening and come to that conclusion, but then to turn around and turn that into the moral of a story that you're writing about that. Like at what point in your reflection does the idea of, of fair come in? Um, you know, it's, 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 it strikes me that, you know, when, when people who believe, when people of faith mm -hmm. get, get surveyed 
and I'm trying to remember where I where I read this or where I where I heard this. Um, it's really, really, really telling that uh, people from higher socioeconomic statuses and and from positions of being part of the dominant culture, they all describe God as being kind. Mm-hmm. And people from minorities, uh, people from poorer economic backgrounds, people who are oppressed see God as being just. Huh. Not kind, but just. Well, those are the same thing. In the end, what's important to them, (laughs) (laughs) that in the end, God is going to balance the scales. Mm Mm-hmm. And and in and in in affluent churches, in churches of the dominant culture, it's you know uh, God loves everyone, and God is going to to save everyone. It's a very different kind of emphasis, yeah. and it tells you everything you need to know about what's actually going on in society in terms of inequality and in terms of whether or not people can get justice mm. in this world. Mm-hmm. And viewed through that lens, um, it is it is infuriating to me after what we have witnessed in, in just the last 12 months. Mm-hmm what we have witnessed and what we have, you know, now that cameras are ubiquitous, now that everybody has the opportunity to share what they're seeing live streaming stuff onto, onto social media for the entire world to witness. We no longer have the luxury of being as able to overlook or look away or not see the the unfairness and the and the injustice around us of of the way people are being treated differently. And so to us, the idea that you would be able to look at those situations and rob them of any context and turn them into mm-hmm. well, you know both sides. Yep. Now if you look at Kurt's, is oh. like the level the level of of disconnect the level of moral abdication mm-hmm. I'm actually I'm even going to be harsher than just disconnect the level of moral emptiness yep in that and you know you, you and I you know come come at some of these things from from different directions but we arrive at the same place like I'm 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 the believer of the two of us I'm the guy who identifies as Catholic. And mm-hmm. to me, like that's an insult to Christ. Like, you know, morally, that's just that's that's so disgusting. Yeah. That that you can that you can come to the conclusion that, like, well, you know, you're both just being childish. No motherfucker. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, half of half of that picture is a group of people being actively subjugated over like what we can agree on is it's stupid shit they're being subjugated for yep but that's the point at which your i'm the smartest guy in the room bullshit becomes fucking annoying and you need to sit down 
Well, it's not just annoying at that point. It's damaging. And so to bring it back, look at how yeah, Kirk well, centralizes toxic. himself. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, it's okay. Look at how Kirk centralizes himself in the conflict of two other people. Look at how he knew nothing about it before it came to him, and then he passes judgment on them from a safe distance, making snap decisions all the way, and even threatening to exercise his total power over everyone in the process by blowing everyone up. And here is, finally, my thesis. Roddenberry's only understanding of religion, race, and feminism come from his own opt-in, comfortable interaction with them. He doesn't really care about women unless he can fuck them. Witness his casting practices. And while he did initially write a pilot with much more equality, it's still in response to his own male gaze, and they're still junior partners to his central character, the captain, who is absolutely a stand-in for himself. His only understanding of race is that it doesn't make much sense to be racist. But if anyone is involved in any conflict over it, he centers himself as the only sane one, as you said, the smartest guy in the room, wishing that the rest would just live according to his precepts. As such, the race issues that he brings up for Uhura are sexualized because he sees her as sexual. Kirk largely ignores Uhura and Sulu on his own bridge unless a problem arises with them. He doesn't really care about the issues that others face, and he absolutely fetishizes and tries to have sex with most aliens. Here's a few other episodes where Kirk absolutely lays it down like this. So regarding religion, if you look at the episode The Apple, where it's a thinly veiled reference to the Garden of Eden, and Kirk essentially kills their god, allowing them to now experience a normal life. That is 100% Roddenberry's idea on organized religion. He's freed them with his judgment and his actions. Kirk also faces down Apollo and defeats him in another episode. He also defeats the techno-god Landru in another episode, freeing the people from their religious devotion. In every single one of those instances, Kirk is the most woke, most reasonable, and only correct voice. He visits, he fixes things for them, and then he leaves them to relearn their life. Similar to Kirk, Roddenberry's only understanding of religion is through his own ego as well, and his own diamonds or daemons are represented by Spock and McCoy. Now, I'm not going to get into the anti-war episode, but I will mention, uh, there were several, but I will mention that there are several episodes that, that take on the thirst of war, and they have Kirk arguing against it. One where the Klingons and Federation are feeding a proxy war, Vietnam. Uh, another where the concept of war has become so sanitized that the people simply accept a constant state of war as normal, so long as it's remote from them. I personally think that it's his way of digging at Robert McNamara, because Robert McNamara was in charge of the uh, Army Air Force, and now he's in charge of Vietnam. But okay. it's yeah, also yeah, it's also pretty clear that Roddenberry doesn't like war. Um, but he goes about it in his very Roddenberryan kind of way. And while people can say that each episode had different writers and that's well acknowledged that Gene absolutely rewrote and rewrote and rewrote and rewrote episodes all the time. And this brings me to the saddest part about all of this. As much as we love Star Trek, Roddenberry kind of sucked as a writer. His own biography, his, his own biographer even said that his, his chief problem 
was constantly rewriting and having to have control over every script and that Roddenberry, quote, the problem for Roddenberry was, quote, he basically couldn't write well enough to carry it off. And if you look at his first attempt of a script uh, for the motion picture, uh, maybe this isn't the saddest part. Maybe the saddest part's coming. But the 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 uh, <laughs> the first attempt at you mean it gets worse. Oh yeah. Oh, uh, it, thankfully, Paramount had its own rewriters, so this never we we will never have to hear Kirk say the phrase "Have you ever sexed with a human?" Wow. Yeah. Now. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to wow. get into the TNG stuff in this particular podcast because that's yeah. such a richer tapestry um, and and we've got lots to mine in there. But rest assured, Gene yeah. does not come out of it well. One writer... <laughs> <laughs> um, one writer, Matthew Continetti, writing a column for the Washington Free Beacon, ended his column with this phrase or with this sentence. I know why Gene Roddenberry stuck so fiercely to his notion of a future where human nature has been transformed and appear good. It's because he knew more than anyone how truly awful we could be. Ooh. Mm, he ain't wrong. Wow. So, is Star Trek focused on social justice? No, it isn't. It's focused on Gene Roddenberry being right and being the smartest and sexiest person amongst us. It's his fantasy of himself based on his love of travel, his disdain for organized religion, his interpersonal beliefs on race, and his self-centered libido. Does it highlight all of those issues in the shadow of a very flawed man's attempt to show off his greatness to everyone else and validate himself? Yeah, it does. He's not incapable of doing kindness or doing the right thing. I truly think that he cared about those issues, similarly to how Joss Whedon does. Going all the way back to the beginning, though, Roddenberry was saving people's lives at risk to himself in the Syrian desert. He led people to safety, but those acts absolutely helped him to later craft a self-image that he wanted to continue to maintain in creative ways as well. And for his time, that is pretty progressive of a white liberal. He did try. And that the fact that Roddenberry is considered progressive, considered social justice and considered woke for his time is much more an indictment of that time than it is praise of the man. So what Roddenberry started and what we'll see later is that the promise that he made, ham-fisted in cardboard as it often was, it does end up getting paid off in some pretty major ways by other properties that were inspired by his efforts. Okay. Yeah, I had to go ham on that. So <laughs> No, you've you've brought me you've brought me Yeah, no, you've you've brought me you've brought me through your thesis and I I I find nothing I can I can, you know, find any kind of a any kind of a, a weakness in. Um I think I think you're definitely right that it's an indictment of the times. Mhm. Um and I think and an improvement. I think we, it we was an improvement. Shouldn't. Oh, it was a huge improvement, and mm-hmm. I think, you know, um, I I think this this is a blow against what I referred to as the hagiography of him within fandom. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't think I I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna try to stave off you know some of the 
you know, Twitter hate we, we're, we, we may get over this. <laughs> the thing is, representation by itself is crucial. Yes. Like the fact that Asian American kids and African American kids and especially African American girls could look on the screen and see them trade in the future mm-hmm. uh, at a time when science fiction was so white. Oh, yeah. So very white. Oh, so many actresses said uh, like, even whiter than it is now. Yeah. Still way too white. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. People talking about Uhura being being such such an inspiration. Whoopi Goldberg, you know, you know Uhura, yeah, uh, being a big deal uh, to her, you know, and and just the idea that uh, at the height of the Cold War, there was a Russian on the bridge, you know, all of that is still important, mm-hmm. and. You know, I, I, I think, you know, as, as time has gone on and, you know, living in the era we're living in now, we know even more how crucial it is for people to see themselves mm-hmm. in uh, in the stories that we that we share with one another. And I think that's that's critical. I think it is sad. <laughs> it is it is it is very sad making uh, to find out that there are there were baser motives behind it. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, but at the same time, the good that was done is still good that was done. Yes. And like, you know, this, this isn't, this isn't us, you know, attempting to, to, you know, assassinate the entire effort just because we're pointing out that he was kind of a dick. Yeah, the deep flaws of a very deeply flawed man. If that who, makes sense, who gave us a a property that other people did really wonderful things with. Okay, I'll go with that. I like that. Yeah, that works. Well, it seems like we got what you gleaned. So let me ask you this instead: uh, What is your favorite episode of the original series? Okay. Oh man, that's that's a tough one. I think I'm going to go with uh, Swashbuckler Sulu. Okay, yeah, yeah. Because uh, and I don't remember the title of the episode, but the but the virus making everybody crazy, and mm-hmm. part of it is just seeing George Takei like clearly having so much fun. Oh like, yeah, number one. The, the the level of I, I get I get to I get to run around with a with a fencing foil and and you know shout like a 17th century musketeer like like how could that not be fun that's awesome right. yeah um, and I already talked about I'm a sword nerd and seeing that depicted that way is just amazing and the j- just there are so many things about that episode beyond that mm-hmm. that. I I just I just find awesome, and and that's that's one of my favorites. Um, and it manages, it manages to kind of have a little bit of a lesson because you know in the end they find out that you know they're all being manipulated by the party space alien, and like the longer we continue fighting, we're just feeding it. So you know we throw down our weapons and we laugh. Right. And I mean it's it's like Rod Serling level 
fisted like <laughs> like you know how 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 much how much more of an anvil can can you make this hmm. but um that was written at the height of the cold war when the klingons were very obviously the stand-ins for the soviet union yes or maybe the chinese i don't know one, one, one of the two and and you know it it you know, still smacks a little bit of, you know, look, look how smart I am as the writer of all this. Mm -hmm. But I think it was, it managed to hit a tone that for me as a kid in the eighties, watching it in syndicate, we're still facing off against the Soviets. Mm -hmm. There, there was, was an underlying level of positivity and hope in that ending. Yeah. That I think was important. Yeah. So, so that's, that's, I'm going to go with that one. But how about you? What's, what's your, of, of the original series? What's, what's, oh, what do you think is your favorite episode? Uh, you know, I really like the Ponfar episode. Um, the music was fun. Uh, the story was, was fun. Okay. I thought, um, uh, where Spock goes through midlife puberty. Um, but the the episode that really sticks in my uh, my head the most <laughs> gives, gives a whole new meaning to midlife crisis. Yeah, no kidding. Jesus, I have to kill my best friend to get laid. Uh, but the one that really sticks in my head the most is probably the one yeah. where um, uh, what's his face, Captain Pike, is in the wheelchair, and they put Spock on trial. It's a two parter. Uh, and, and I love that episode. Like the fact that Spock is just like so willing to do the right thing, uh, at, at great cost to himself is, is definitely, Mm -hmm. that's, that's likely my favorite. So I am going to recommend a book as well. Uh, I'm going to recommend Orvi, O-R-V-I-E, The Dictator of Dearborn, uh, written by David L. Good. And it's a biography of that son of a bitch uh, mayor that uh, was in uh, Dearborn. Uh, it's it is anytime you hear about a strong mayor initiative in any major city, read this book and realize why that's a bad idea. Uh, it's, it's really really good. So uh, for, but, for anybody in the audience who's who's not. In local, local to me and Damien, uh, it should be noted that in our most recent election, uh, one of the issues on the ballot was a strong mayor initiative. So that's part of the reason I'm laughing as yeah. hard as I am. Which had also been uh, <laughs> an initiative on the ballot years ago when we had a basketball player, child predator, uh, as a mayor. So, yeah, uh, keep keep away from having strong mayors if you can. Um, trust me, it doesn't go well. Uh, so, uh, where can people find you on the social medias? Okay. So on the social medias, I can be found on the Twitter and on Instagram at EAH Blaylock. Uh, and of course, if you want to yell at both of us at once, because how dare we say these horrible things about St. Jean, uh, you can yell at us at geek history time. Uh, on Twitter, and where can they find you, sir? Uh, you can find me at Duh Harmony on the Twitter and the Instagram. You can find me every Tuesday night at 8:30 p.m. PST on Twitch.tv forward slash Capital Puns. Uh, you can also uh, what was the other thing I was going to say? Um, 
Dad gummy. Oh yes, you can. Uh, <laughs> uh, you can find this podcast on Spotify, on Stitcher, and on the iTunes Store. Uh, please subscribe. Hit that subscribe button. We like that. Uh, rate, subscribe, and review. Give us that five star that you know that we deserve. Uh, and tell your friends. Absolutely, tell your friends. So, for a geek history of time, I'm Damien Harmony. And I'm Ed Blaylock. And until the next time, live long and prosper. Ooh, nice job.